we're going to go over to James chapter 4 and then 1 Peter chapter 5. And the title of the lesson tonight is Clothed with Humility. Clothed with Humility. And we hope this is a lesson that speaks to all of us. I'll read 1 Peter 5 first, beginning with verse 5. In the second sentence, 1 Peter 5 and 5, Yea, all of you be clothed, Yea, all of you be subject one to another, be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now let's go to James 4. Let's notice verse number six. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he says, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And then if you'll look at verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. So we're taking our title from First Peter 5 and 5 where it says, be clothed with humility. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to look into the scriptures again. It's always a privilege to be able to see what you have said to us. So give us ears to hear. Give us a mind to apply these things to how we live. And Father, help us to humble ourselves in accordance with your word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. There are several scriptures in the Bible that deal with pride. Just a couple of them. The scripture says that out of a foolish mouth comes a rod of pride. The scripture says that pride precedes destruction. Now, pride can be manifested in different ways. Pride can be outwardly manifested through arrogance, and you can hear it in someone's speech. You can see it in the way they interact with you. They may be snobbish and try to treat you like you're not equal to who they are, but then pride can also be manifested inwardly. It can be one of those kinds of qualities where a person doesn't want to ask for help, or someone is the kind of person who gets angry at someone, then retains that anger inside, and they're plotting, plotting against someone. And, and all of these forms of pride, the scripture makes very plain, are destructive. In fact, it can become a snare. And people who are prideful have a tendency to set traps for other people or want to see other people fall into traps without realizing that they're also digging one for themselves when they're wishing and hoping and longing for someone else to end up in, in trouble. Now in James chapter 4, Paul has been dealing with the issue of strife in the first verse there. And he's talking about how it comes about. People have different desires, different lusts, and people become combative in order to uh, bring to fruition the lust that they have. And then he went on to say that even when we ask sometimes, we ask amiss, that is to say in the wrong way with the wrong motive, with the wrong intention. 
So in a figurative way, in verse 4, he speaks about adulterers and adulteresses, saying that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So there's hostility between people who have a covenant and people who do not have a covenant with God. Sinners and saints do not always get along because of the fact one person has humbled themselves to God's word and the other group has not humbled themselves to God's word. So it's a matter of light and darkness, and the two just don't get along, like oil and water. They don't mix. There are a lot of things where there is um, harmony and accord, but when it comes to the issue of God and faith, sinners and saints don't get along because the, the, the sinner says, why do I need religion? I'm just as good as you. The saint's response is, well, to be good as me is to be nowhere, because who am I? I'm no standard. I'm, I'm not, I have no criteria by which you should judge, judge your life. And so inside of people, there's this, this hostility that exists because we're unhappy with the devil, and then the sinners are unhappy with God, and the two just don't mix. So when we come here then, uh, this, this man James is, is telling us that, that envy is a product of desire and lust. You want something that doesn't belong to you. You want something that belongs to someone else. And he's offering us a remedy when he gets to verse 6. And James tells us that he, meaning God, gives more grace. So what is grace? Of course, grace we know is unmerited favor. Grace according to Paul, is something that transforms your life. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. We know that. But they're, they're quoting here an Old Testament psalm when it talks about God giving grace to the humble. But notice in verse 6, it said, God resists the proud. This tells us that God is the enemy of people who have a proud countenance and a proud heart. You may ask, isn't there some forms of pride that, that may be good? Well, yeah, I mean, you can have national pride and be proud of your country. Nothing wrong with that. You can have pride in uh, the fact that, you know, military folks wear a uniform. They wear it proudly. They're quite happy about that. But when we're talking about pride, I'm talking about confidence or reliance in someone or something that is incapable of helping you and can mislead you and take you down a path that moves you further and further away from God. Anything that causes you to believe you can be self-sufficient, self-reliant. Keep the word self going and you can see we're dealing with pride. Doesn't matter how you describe it. Ego, high self-esteem, low self-esteem. If self is involved, you're going to end up in pride. And this is why Paul says self has to be crucified. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Scripture even says that our thought, the very thought itself, a carnal thought can be sin. And he says death is in the thought in Romans chapter 8. So God is opposed to the proud. He's an enemy to them. He resists them. Now what does that mean to resist? That means to try to, to forestall anything they're trying to do. God stands as a brick wall in front of the proud. You say, well, there's a lot of proud people that prosper for a season. And even though it seemingly appears that they're prospering, 
may not be quite what you think it is. There are a whole lot of people in this world that though they may look like things are going well, if you could just be a fly on the wall in the car or in the house, you'd find out things aren't quite what they seem to be. Yeah. So the old proverb says everything that glitters isn't gold, and, and there's a whole lot of truth to that. If God is going to give grace to the humble, then we need to know that the humble person is the opposite of the person who's proud. A humble person is meek. They, they have what, what the scripture calls lowliness of mind. That means they prefer people above themselves. They don't spend time try, trying to exalt themselves and lift themselves up. They don't spend a lot of time talking about themselves. They could be super talented, but would rather talk about somebody else. That's how a humble person should act, you know, rather than telling people how, how, how great you may believe that you are. I think I've told you before that, that I, I heard somebody speaking one time, a really obnoxious preacher at a, at a conference one time, and, and then... Um, they're, they're bragging about this and bragging about that. And then the, the, the question comes up about, you know, all their accomplishments and, and all of that. And someone made the statement that someone's name was Daryl was, you know, I, I'd never known how great you were had you not kept telling me. See, there, there's there's some greatness that only comes across if people continue to insist upon how great they are. But you should be able to see it. In someone's work, a good mason, they don't have to brag about their brick walls or the way they pave the street. All you've got to do is go out there and look at the quality of the work. Same thing with someone who's a good finished carpenter. You, you can see it in the detail. They don't have to brag. They don't have to boast. So the humble person is not interested in magnifying themselves. And the scripture said, God giveth grace to the humble. So the humble person receives the very thing that God withholds from the proud person. And the proud person needs it. But God doesn't give it to him. And you can see in verse 10, the Lord goes so far as to say we should humble ourselves. Now in Latin, the word humble or humility means to lay down, to lie prostrate, to lie flat, to make yourself low. And the scripture says, do that in the sight of the Lord. We don't need to boast to God about how great we are, even how strong we are in him. He knows what we are and what we're not. If we have power from him, he gave it to us. That makes it a gift. If it is a gift, why should we then take the gift, hold it up in his face and tell him how lovely we are? We should be grateful for the gift. Father, thank you for how you blessed me with long life. Father, I'm so grateful that you've been kind enough to give me strong, robust health. Father, thank you for how you blessed me and blessed the fruit of my womb. Father, you've been so good to bless me in this way or that way. So humility is a magnet for the grace of God. And according to verse 10, if you humble yourself at a certain time, God's going to lift you up. Now that between the point where you humble yourself and God does the lifting, that is where patience is needed and perseverance is required. We have a tendency to want God to give promotion to us yesterday. And if God's not moving quick enough, 
then we don't have a problem letting God know that he really does need to get in a hurry because we need to be exalted pretty fast. But that's not that's not what God does. God, God waits and he has a particular season. And the scripture does say, if you humble yourself, he shall lift you up. So you reap what you sow and the promise is sure. Remain humble regardless of what your circumstances look like. Your day is coming. Your season is coming. There is going to be a point in time in your life when God exalts you. Even if everybody else seems to be going to the front. And everybody else seems to be uh, achieving this and that and accomplishing all of their goals. And they're they're the ones winning all the medals and winning all the contests. If you remain humble and do what God has told you to do, there will be a point in time where God will lift you up. He may not lift you up in the eyes of everybody, but he'll lift you up. And he'll lift you up so that some people will see you. It's the the sight of God and the eyes of God that should matter more to us than anything else. Humble yourself in his sight. Now let's go over to 1 Peter now. And you can see this again. Similarly, in verse 5 of chapter 5, we're told to be clothed with humility. So now we're to think of humility as if it's a garment or a cloak, something that you can put on. You can put it on or take it off. Paul even says that in Ephesians and in Colossians. He talks about putting on the old man and the new man. So here again, you you put on humility and then he reiterates the same thing that James said in the other location. God resists the proud. So this must have been a belief that was pretty strong in the early church. And then it says again, he gives grace to to the humble. Then he also said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. See, notice what James said, humble yourselves in the sight of God. Now we hear, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So your due time is coming. Your due time will come. And it's the mighty hand of God that protects you even when you're humbling yourself. The adversary comes against you. He's opposed to you. He wants to see you fail. He does not want to see you succeed at all. But you've got to understand, God has not planned for you or for me any defeats. He's planned for us success. How do I know that? Because it says in Joshua chapter 1, the person that meditates on God's word and keeps the word in his mouth so that he's talking about it in the morning, in the afternoon, evening, and nighttime. It said they'll have good success. So I guess there's a such thing as bad success. You realize it's possible to go from zero to everything and lose your family in the process of becoming successful? It is. That's bad success. It's possible to... To make your way from the bottom all the way up through the top ranks of whatever it is that you're doing. And in the process, lose every friend that you had because you step on everybody to try to get there. Sleep your way to the top, whatever it might be. But there is such a thing as good success. And humility is the foundation to getting or obtaining the good success. Because if I'm humbling myself in the sight of God, then I know he sees me. If he sees me, then I can expect that his hand covers me. And if his hand is covering me, I can expect that that same hand is going to lift me up. That's exactly what the Lord will do. And you can see that 
he says there in verse 6, if you're going to do that, uh, in verse 7, you've got to cast your care upon him. So again, between the part where we humble ourselves until the time that he lifts us up or exalts us, we may have anxieties and worries and tests and trials, but Peter goes a little further this time, and Peter tells us, cast your care upon him because he cares for you. Give God every burden. Give him every burden as you're humbling yourself. As other people are doing what they can to promote themselves and you're stepping back and other people are volunteering to do this and do that and, and you're just kind of staying back in the shadows and not saying anything, I can promise you people take notice of humility because the people with the loud mouths, everybody already knows who they are, but the ones who are quiet and meek and of a lowly spirit, people mark them also. They pay attention to them and they recognize that these are the kinds of people who may have those quiet, quiet leadership skills that are necessary in order for God to bring blessing to other people. So cast your care upon him. If you're burdened with anything, say, God, I've been waiting a while. What's taking so long? I've been expecting you to do this or that for me, Lord, but, but I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to lay this at your feet, and, and I'm walking away from it. Now, the reason... This is interesting to me because in, in, in all my years of looking at the scripture, this is the first time I've ever made the connection with James and Peter, how both of them are talking about humility, and then they then both go into dealing with resisting the devil. Both of them. Now let's go back to James. Go back to James. And look at James chapter 4. We learn in verse 6 that God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. If he gives grace to the humble, then that grace is given to us for a specific reason, and that reason is in verse 7. Submit ourselves, therefore, to God. God's going to give us grace and more grace to continue to submit ourselves to the Lord so that we then will be empowered to resist the devil. The man or woman that humbles themselves in the sight of God is going to resist the devil. And this isn't a matter of you saying, devil, I rebuke you and Satan, get away from me. This is about lifestyle. This is about belief. Your behavior will correspond to what you believe. You cannot walk the north and south direction simultaneously. You can't go east and west at the same time. The moment you humble yourself to God and submit to the word of God, you have now turned away from the adversary. That's a form of resistance because you have turned your back on him. You're not even listening to what he said anymore. That's what Adam and Eve should have did in the garden. They didn't do it. They didn't submit themselves to the word of God continually. There came a point in time where what the serpent said was attractive to them. So again, resist the devil and he will flee. We don't know when. We know he will. We know he's going to. He will depart. Resist the devil. How do I resist the devil? By submitting myself to God. How do I submit myself to God? Through what God's word tells you to do. Every time you follow the prescription in the word that says, pray ye one for another. When you start praying, you're resisting the devil that doesn't want you to pray. 
Every time a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife receives their paycheck and then they remember to give God the first fruits off of that, they are resisting the devil because the devil will tell them to rob God every day of the week. Every day of the week. When the scripture tells us to love our enemies, when you do that, you're resisting the devil. Because what comes naturally? Hate your enemies. See? Love those that are your friends and hate all of your enemies. That's the culture of the world. But humility submits itself to the word of God. The more God's word that you read, the more the spirit of God can work in you regarding this word. And as you submit more and more of your life to God, then you're resisting the devil. and He has less place that he can occupy in your life, in your mind. And I know it's true because even Paul said in Ephesians, he said, look, don't be so angry that you sin. You ever seen somebody really get mad? Really get mad. I mean, so mad that they're shaking mad, uncontrollably mad. It's hard to calm those kind of people down. Especially when the scripture says, be angry, but don't sin. Now, somebody has to really meditate on that and figure out how to do it. How to do it the right way. Because we instantly, when we're angry and upset, we want to hurt somebody. Or we want to hurt something. And there's been a lot of sheetrock that's had to be replaced in people's homes. And a lot of dishes that have had to be patched up or thrown out because somebody got angry. And people get angry and they have all this hostility. And here's what they'll say sometimes. I know I shouldn't be that way, but that's just who I am. That's my temperament. That's just the German coming out of me. Well, it's not the German. A whole lot of German people don't act like that. They say, well, that's just the Irish in me coming out. It's not the Irish. You know, people that say sometimes around me when they use bad language, they say, oh, Reverend, excuse my French. I say, I know that wasn't French. I understood what you said. <laughs> wasn't French. See? But, but all of these statements are excuses, hop-outs, a way to justify behavior that the Lord says should be crucified. Now think about that for a second. If someone says to you, that's just who I am, when they talk about how angry they get, and they just, they just fly off the handle and have to go off on people, here's what the scripture tells us quite, quite clearly. Your old nature was crucified with Christ. You are not supposed to allow your emotions to dominate your life. The scripture says with every temptation that comes to man, there's a way of escape. So as soon as you get angry and upset, you do have a choice. You don't have to say everything that comes into your head. Some people don't realize that. You don't. You have a choice. You don't have to say that. You do not have to use your language to demean somebody just because you're angry with them. A whole lot of other things you can say that won't be sinful, but still get your, your point across. You just got to practice what you're going to say. So looking at this again, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. That, that's automatic. If you know what the devil is trying to do, resist him. If you know there are certain people he's trying to use in your life that are creating havoc, and they're the kind of people that push certain buttons in your life that get you upset, you've got to think about that. You know you're getting ready to go to work, and you know that, that Florence gets on your last nerve, and every time you see her, 
you, you know, you just, just find yourself getting angry. So then you've got to prepare yourself. Father, help me as I go in here because I want to be submitted to your word and I'm needing you to give me more grace to be able to handle this woman so I don't kill her today. See, you, you don't you have to be honest, you know. Uh, every, everybody that you work with isn't nice. Some, some people have, have, um, have pretty bad, bad attitudes and there's no sense in, in you know, just, just snickering at me and just saying that's funny. I mean, God already sees you thinking that in your heart anyway. And so when, when we're able to, to be honest with the Lord, God then can supply the grace that's needed. And when she comes around or he comes around and is trying to push certain buttons by saying certain things just to see if they can get under your skin, now you're controlling yourself. And so now the devil has to go to plan B because they're trying to figure out, well, usually that works. It's not working today. It's not working because you're resisting, you're resisting the devil. Go back to 1 Peter 5 now, and, and notice how, how, how Peter deals with this. In 1 Peter 5, again, verse 5, be clothed with humility. Verse 6, humble yourselves. It's something we must do. Verse 7, we cast our care upon the Lord, but we, we don't stop there. He says, now be sober, be vigilant, be watchful, be, be, you know, be the kind of person that's, that's looking out for trouble anything it says because your adversary the devil don't ever think the devil is your friend he is not i don't care what anybody says about black magic sorcery and witchcraft and and uh and and uh, uncle 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 ben he could be a warlock and it doesn't matter to me if you got a grandma or somebody that's involved with tarot card reading it's all evil it's all evil you say, well, well, my, my one cousin, she, she's involved with the psychic stuff, but, but she tells me that her gift is from God. Hogwash. It's deception. That's all it is. It's a familiar spirit, as the Bible describes it. An evil spirit that is familiar with people and places and things that imparts information to that person who is a passive and willing medium who wants to convey that information to anybody who will listen in a seance or somebody who will sit down across a table with some tea leaves or with some tarot cards or whatever it is. Crystal ball gazing, all of it is still wicked. And the Bible says that our adversary, the devil, he's like a roaring lion. See? Most animals in the wild do not like lions, and they like to make themselves scarce when a lion comes in the area. So a roaring lion makes a whole lot of noise, and the scripture says here he walks about looking for someone he may devour. So he's not just out going for a stroll, he's looking for prey. The devil has an objective every day that you swing those legs out of bed. And you are his target. And he wants to do what he can to destroy your health. He wants to destroy your marriage. He'd love to see you fired from nine jobs. If the devil has any opportunity in your life and he can squeeze in just a little place, he's going to get in there. And from that inch, he'll try to make it into a foot and then he'll go even further. And that's why Paul said, don't give him any place. Once you recognize he's there, resist him, fight him. And then James and... Peter have told us that if we submit ourselves to God, that's, that's part of the resistance movement. 
So verse, verse number nine, it says, resist steadfast in the faith. That's an important statement because this book, 1 Peter, was written to Christians in the current area of Turkey who were being persecuted for their faith. And Peter is trying to encourage them by telling them that the same afflictions that are accomplished in you are being accomplished in your brothers. So even though the devil is wicked and doing all kinds of mean, hurtful things and torturing believers, you resist him with what you believe. So don't be afraid. That's what he's saying. People are dying all over the place around you, but you resist the devil with your faith. Just because... Somebody else had a problem. That doesn't mean it has to come to you. And just because uh, this person over here uh, contracted this particular affliction or disease, you don't have to spend your life walking in fear thinking you're going to get it. And just because this person over here lost their car and in the middle of the night it was repoed, you don't have to believe that God is not going to help you hold on to what you have. Just because this person over here wasn't able to buy Christmas presents for their family. That doesn't mean it's going to happen to you. What I'm saying is you have to resist the devil with your faith because he is looking for people he can attack. And he gets them every day. Yeah, he gets them every day. If you watch a pride of lions and they go after big prey, you, you, you can see one of the ways they like to take down them elephants and stuff is you just have enough of those lions jump on the elephant, then pretty soon the elephant's got too much weight on his back and he can't run anymore. And then the poor little elephant falls to the ground and what happens? They just devour, just devour, see? dies. You, you watch the Australian wild dingo dogs when they go after their prey. They look, they look for a herd they look for someone moving a little slower than everybody else, maybe some, something that's come up lame, and then you have one of those dogs start running the herd, then the rest of them will just kind of start trotting around because they know eventually the herd's coming back to where they are, and then when you run them around a little while, then after a while they start getting tired, and then one of the other dogs takes off and starts running, and then pretty soon they start cutting into the herd to separate one, two, or three from the larger mass of the herd. And it Attack them and devour. That's what the devil does. He looks for somebody who will easily become offended. And before you know it, they're so angry and upset, I don't want to go to church anymore. And they're not even thinking about the fact the devil is trying to separate them from the flock. See? They're just angry. Or, or somebody comes along and says, I prayed and asked God to do this for me and he didn't do it. So I'm just not going to serve God anymore. As if God's going to fall off the throne and cease to exist because you're throwing a tantrum. Now, it grieves God and it hurts God that, 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 we, that, that we won't receive the love that he wants us to have. But you've got to understand, God's immutable. He doesn't change. He's, he's not the kind of God that, that is emotional like we are. He's a, he's a whole lot different. So, verse 10 tells us, that the God of grace who has called us. See, notice, the God of grace. Now, the reason I wanted to bring out that first sentence there in verse 10 is because you see in verse 5, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humbles. The God of grace who dispenses the grace. He doesn't run out. He has it for you. He has it for me. He has it for thousands of people. And this is necessary for us to humble ourselves and to resist the devil. 
So do we have people in the Bible that refused to submit to God and walked in pride? Oh, yes. Second Samuel, in your Old Testament. I'll tell you the story and walk you through it. There was a gentleman by the name of David who decided that he wanted this one particular lady. This is in chapters 11 and 12, 2 Samuel. And he went after Bathsheba. And he conspired to have her husband killed and he died. He was murdered. Well, Nathan came to him and told him, God knows what you did. And the Lord said to him, 2 Samuel 12, verse number 10, said, the sword will never depart from your house. Now, we, we read a sentence like that, and we wonder, what does that mean? That, that means David is going to have trouble in his house as long as he's on planet Earth. He's going to die. There's going to be trouble in his house. All the days that he lives after this prophecy is going to be trouble. You say, did it happen just like that? Yeah. Now, 2 Samuel 3, the first few verses, give us the names of his sons. His oldest son was Amnon. And then he had third and his fourth son, Absalom and Adonijah. So one day, Amnon, the oldest boy, took a good look at his sister, Tamar. It's quite beautiful. And Amnon decided he wanted to have relations physically with his sister. You can imagine. And so he pretended to be ill, sent word to his dad, said, could you please have my sister come make me that food that she makes that I love so very much. And sure enough, she wore these beautiful colors. And, and the reason she wore all them colors is because the virgins in Israel wore garments that had different colors. She got there and sure enough, her brother had eyes for her and forced himself upon her. And then afterward, kicked her out and said, get out and don't ever come back. I don't want to see you again. She said, what you're doing to me is worse than the sexual assault. Because under Israeli law, if you have physical relations, you ought to have come together and have some kind of a marriage. But of course, they're brother and sister, so that's impossible. So to cast her out after he's forced himself upon her, he's robbed her of her virginity. And she's sitting there grieving and crying. And her brother, Absalom, comes along. And Absalom says, what in the world is wrong with you? She tells him. And he, he says, you mean to tell me our brother did this to you? He said, okay. He said, you stay here in the palace with me, living in my, in, in my section here. And he said, don't say a word. He said, dad's going to find out about all this, but you, you don't say a word. Well, we'll, 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 we'll take care of this. And the Bible says when David found out what Amnon did, it grieved David. But here was one of David's weaknesses. He loved his family so much that whenever they would sin, he would not discipline them. He loved them too much. He would not reprove them. He wouldn't say anything about them. He should have took that scoundrel son of his and put him in jail. Or according to the Old Testament law, he would have lost his life. David did nothing. He didn't even vindicate his daughter's honor. Absalom was seething. What kind of a dad is this? Let our sister get 
raped and he won't even do anything to our brother. And what kind of a brother is this that would let this happen? Well, two years later, Absalom got all the people that were shearing sheep together. And he invited his dad, David, to come. David said, no, I don't want to come because if we all come, then, you know, it's more costly. And then they've got to make provision for me to be there, security arrangements and all that. Just, just take, bring the boys along and you guys sit there and have a good time. So sure enough, that's what Absalom did. But he had already told some special servants of his, you watch when Amnon is drinking and when he gets he gets drunk with wine. I'm going to give you the signal. Then all of you rise up and stab him to death. Exactly what happened. They were all sitting there. And then he gave the signal. And with all of David's other sons sitting there, they jumped up and stabbed Abnon to death. And I guarantee you people were terrified. It says David's sons took off and fled in every direction. Some runner went and told David, Absalom has tried to kill all of the king's sons. But here's what 2 Samuel 13 verse, verse uh, number 32 says. And it says that, that Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, answered and said, Don't let my Lord suppose that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. For by the appointment of Absalom, this have been determined from the day that he forced his sister. You know what that means? That means the day Amnon raped his sister, Absalom had it in his heart, I'm going to kill him. And the Bible says that whenever he came in contact with, Ab with Amnon during that two-year period, he didn't speak to him in a good way. He didn't speak to him in a bad way. He was just indifferent to him. He just talked with him. But in his heart, it was growing, and that bitterness was there. Nathan the prophet told David, the sword won't depart from your, heart, from your house. How would you like to have a family with that going on? See, see. All of this because David decided... He wanted to go after another man's wife. And all of that came into his house. So Absalom fled for his life. He spent three years in Syria. The Bible says David longed for Absalom. He missed him. He cried over him, wanted him so bad. And finally, one of his military guys said, look, let me go get this guy. I mean, so you just no sense in you carrying on like this. Let me go get him. And finally, uh, the king told him to go ahead. He brought him back, but he wouldn't let him come see him. And so he spent the next two years living in Jerusalem, but never could see his dad. His dad said, I don't want to see him, but I'll let him come back. Know what happens next? Absalom is so mad that his father won't see him. He sent word to Joab and said, Joab, tell my dad I want to see him. Joab wouldn't respond. He sent another messenger. Joab still wouldn't come see him and respond. So finally, Absalom said, you know what? Isn't that Joab's field over there filled with barley? He said, yeah, that's his barley field. He said, go over there and set it on fire. He'll come see me then. And they went over there, set the entire field on fire. Joab said, what is this that you're doing? Absalom said, I tried to get you to come see me, but you wouldn't come. So I set your fields on fire. You see what kind of son this is? Evil, angry, vindictive, vengeful. If I can't get my way, I'll destroy what everybody else has. So finally he saw David. David kissed him on the cheek. 
You'd have thought Absalom would learn this lesson. Oh, no, no, no. David let him back in. Absalom started, he, he, he hired 50 men and some horses and chariots, and they ran before him in the city, and they were announcing he's got favor with the king again. He's got favor with the king. So he goes down and sits in the gate, and he's talking to the people, judging their cases, and he said, you know what? I wish I was a judge, and I could make the decision about your problem. Because we don't have anybody here to judge righteously for you. But if you were to let me be king, I'd be a good judge around here. And the Bible says that in that manner, he stole the hearts of Israel. Imagine King David sitting on the throne every day in the palace, thinking everything's safe and sound. His boy is down there at the gate where all the elders and the leaders meet, and he's one by one leading the people, the heads of the tribes, away from King David and into his pocket. And that's exactly what happened. Absalom took 200 men, sent people throughout the nation, and said, when you hear the sound of the trumpet blow, then know that I have become king, and everybody know that I'll reign. And when it happened... Word came to David, they'd blown the trumpet, they'd made Absalom the king, and David said, we better run for our lives now because you know this man will not spare me and he won't spare any of you. Here's a man that knew how devious his son was. You can't tell me parents don't know their kids. Parents know what's inside their kids. They know what their kids are capable of. They watch them from the time they're little until, until adulthood, and they can see who was selfish when they were kids and didn't want to share, and they could see who was happy and vindictive and mean and always wanted to fight, or the one that was always smiling and quiet. Parents can see it. David knew what was taking place. Here he is again. He's on the run, just like when he's running from Saul. You know, you think... In your youth and in your old age, you get tired of being in a cave. But when you repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again, you find yourself doing the same thing over and over again. You say, what was his problem? Pride. Man thought he was king, could do whatever he wants, take somebody's wife. Nobody can say anything to him about it. And because of that one decision, look at how much he's lost. And when, when it's all over... As for Absalom, if you're going to live in a violent way, you're going to die in a violent way. According to the Bible, he was very handsome. And they said there wasn't a blemish in him at all. Imagine somebody that handsome had a thick head of hair. Said he cut it once a year. And I mean, that hair was thick like sheep. Said he had a whole lot of hair. But one day, looking for his dad and everybody, he's trekking through the forest and says he went up under some branches and his hair got caught in the branches and the mule kept on riding. And here he's hanging from the branches by his hair and David's men came up and thrust him through with a sword. Yep, thrust him through. You know what David did? In that battle when so many thousands of Israelis lost their lives, David was at home weeping and crying over Solomon and his military man told him, said, would you please get up off of your knees? You're not even crying for the Israeli soldiers that died on your behalf, but you're weeping for that traitor that hated you in the kingdom. You're still crying over Absalom and he never amounted to anything. Well, David went on and lived what life he had left 
Nathan's prophecy followed him to his deathbed. He said, the sword will never depart from your house. King David was a man that had wives, concubines, lust problems. And 1 Kings chapter 1 said that when he was on his deathbed and he was dying and growing weaker, some of the servants said, the king, he is not getting better. Somebody find him a beautiful lady that'll be able to come and look after him and maybe keep him warm or something. Just stimulate something in him to get some kind of reaction out of him. They got a little Shunammite lady named Abishag, came, nursed him, looked after him, says that he never knew her. He wasn't even aroused, wasn't even interested. And then a few days later, the next brother, Adonijah, the Bible says he exalted himself. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. And he promoted himself, and you know what he did? It says in verse 5, he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. We've seen this movie before, and we know exactly how it ends. He did exactly what Absalom did, had the men running throughout, and he went to a certain place, and they anointed him to be king, and the, he took one of the priests with him, and one of his counselors, people who had been loyal to David, walked away from David, and Adonijah was sitting down there having a big party, they're blowing the trumpet, making all kinds of noise, and word gets back to David as he's laying on that deathbed, and is saying to him that your boy is down there eating up all of your money they're having a party and Bathsheba came in there and said my lord don't you know that Adonijah is taking the kingdom and you promised that my son Solomon would reign after you die so Bathsheba and Nathan and them had kind of orchestrated this so he came in afterwards and said it's just like she said and David said, take little Solomon, put him on the king's mule. And you go and you get the priest and Nathan, and you take him down to the holy place, and there have Zadok pour that oil on him and anoint him in front of everybody, and then blow the trumpet and say, long live Solomon, and may God make his throne greater than his father." Sure enough, they went down there, they're having a big party, they're making all of this noise, people are dancing, having a good time, and, and Adonijah and them are drinking it up, having a good time at their place. Finally, a runner comes to Adonijah and said, I've got bad news for you. Looks like the king has made Solomon the king, and they're over there having a wonderful time. They poured the oil on him, and the whole nation seems to be running after him. And all those people sitting there with Adonijah realized we're on the wrong side. And they took off and ran as fast as they could. How did Adonijah die? Trying to run into the temple, thinking nobody would come in there and get him. But David had a warrior by the name of Benaiah, and Benaiah didn't care where you were when it came time for him to come and execute judgment. He'd go in the house of God. Adonijah said, I'm not coming out of here. I'm holding on to the horns of the altar. I'll die in here. 
like Joab also. I'll die in here. I'm not leaving. Benaiah went in there and killed Joab and buried him. Adonijah ended up in trouble because he wanted King David's last lady, Abishag, the Shunammite, and because he requested her, Solomon sent Benaiah down there to take his life. Folks, when you read the book of Kings and you read Samuel and Chronicles, if there's anything to learn from all these stories is that pride will always precede destruction. Can you imagine one decision that David made with Bathsheba led to so much turmoil, sadness, and sorrow? I don't think I said it here, but I think I was mentioning this on uh, Sunday morning in the message, and I, and I said something to the effect that here's a man or woman go step out on their spouse, <clears throat> then the marriage dissolves. Then years later, when uh, either party gets remarried, then here, here, here's some, some, uh, some man who's all upset, and he's saying, well, I, I don't care if you are getting married, that your new husband, he, he better not be saying anything to my children. He better not be disciplining them. See? And, 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 and the new husband, stepdad, he's working, paying the bills, raising them, Dad could have been in the house, but because he made a bad decision, he's outside the house thinking he can make, still make, make decisions. But the, the day he decided to climb in bed with somebody else, he all but determined the kids would have another father or another mother. That's what happens. See? Because of one decision, the Bible says, humble yourself, myself, in the sight of God. And in due season, He'll lift us up. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful because your word is true. We can learn a lot from these people in the Old and New Testament. So God, I pray every day you help us to be submissive to your word, have our hearts submitted to your will, even when it hurts us and it pains us. I pray, God, that each one of us, when temptation and tests and trials come, you'll multiply your grace We'll continue to trust you and love you. These things, oh God, I pray for these folks here tonight and for myself. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen, amen.